life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Hello all, welcome to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. Another show tomorrow for your entertainment, beginning at 8pm as well. Special guest for Media Stick, James Mustapik. Go look him up on YouTube. Yeah, you've got to know how to spell it, don't you? He's, um, he's very funny. He takes the piss very nicely out of pop, pop culture. He looks about 12. M-U-S-T-A-P-I-C. Special guest tomorrow night. Also tomorrow, another edition of Jesus Make It Stop as Glenn Harper, tremendous uh, war historian from Massey University, walks us through the last days of World War I and its merciful end, just about on November the 11th, which will fall on a Sunday tomorrow. Oh dear, uh, famous general Ludendorff. Uh, Ludendorff was becoming more and more erratic and his moods would, would seriously uh, swing between being uh, optimistic that they could continue to um, actually moods of serious depression and actually collapsing on the carpet and foaming at, at the mouth. Um, so he was becoming more and more erratic and irrational and I think in some ways the war had, uh, had seriously unbalanced him. Um, as an example of that, he's had two steps sons and were both killed during the war and um, the stepson that was killed in August 1918, Hindenburg actually had his body retrieved from the battlefield and brought back to his headquarters where it was placed in a refrigerator and each night he would go and talk to it, he'd pull it out and talk to it, um, which I think indicates that he's slightly unbalanced but also I think it indicates certainly the loneliness and isolation of command. Glenn Harper tomorrow, Jesus make it stop from 9.30. The Royal Society is New Zealand's foremost scientific organisation, I think it's safe to say. Uh, they give out big gongs once a year. The premier gong for smartest, best cat in the sciences is called the Rutherford Medal, for obvious reasons, of course, our Nobel laureate. So you better have done something pretty damn smart to win it. I put that to Rod Downey. It went to a mathematician this week. Mathematician Rod Downey. So, uh, after the break, we'll put him on the barbie and grill him. And basically, I'll get to explain what do you do and pretend you're explaining it to someone at the checkout. He's a neat story, actually. He's a cool cat. Rod Downey, Rutherford Medal winner. Royal Society and a round of applause. The other side of this commercial break. Astronomy after that as well. Good evening. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. A special science report this week as we gather a round of applause and celebrate the Royal Society's, in this case, premier medal, and that is the Rutherford Medal. The recipient this year, Rod Downey, a mathematician, the blurb goes, solving can't compute. And is that random sequence really random? First of all, congratulations, Professor Rod Downey. Oh, thank you very much. Just to get on to a little bit about being a mathematician and the path towards such a prestigious prize, was there anybody or any event or thing that inspired you towards your academic career? 
Yeah, I kind of drifted into academia. I came from a family nobody had ever really got beyond about ninth or tenth grade. No downy had ever been to university and a great suspicion of such people. Anyway, Gough Whitlam in Australia, he was a Prime Minister, came in and made public education public. All of a sudden, lots of people could flood into university because it was finally relatively free. And I was lucky enough, because I was from a very low-income family, I also managed to get all of the special things that were set up for the low-income people. So I got what was called full independent T's, tertiary assistance at the time. So I kind of drifted into university. And when I went into university, I got really fascinated by the mathematics. And I kind of drifted along. And as I went on and on, I became more and more interested. At the same time, I was, I was working tutoring and I was working in a pub in the bar. So <laughs> towards the end, I could have become a, the bar manager, which my parents said, take it, you're getting 200 bucks a week. <laughs> Clear, by the way. Or, you know, I had to, could take this wonderful scholarship to do a PhD, which was for um, 5200 for a, for a married couple, which was to made a great drop in income because we were paying about $70 a week rent then. Yeah. Right. So it was just luck. When you were at high school, did you come top in maths? I was always somewhere near the top in the classes I was in. I'm not going to say I was, I was never any good at mathematics. I was always good at mathematics. But, you know, I was interested in lots of things. So um, it's, it's not always true that you have to be good when you're young to be good later. Yeah. And it's certainly true that I got better as time went on. But that just came because I became more interested and worked a lot harder. People who were afraid of maths... I spoke about this last week with Matt Visser, another Royal Society recipient. Yeah, just down from me in the, in the office down. Oh, oh, yell out, say hi. You're right. <laughs> um, maybe people would be better at it if this fear wasn't so prevalent. Why is it there? What are your thoughts? I wonder about whether people are genuinely kind of afraid of mathematics or afraid of the thought of mathematics. People love doing Sudoku. That's just purely maths. Mathematics for them probably means something like calculus or some of this very formidable formal thing. In fact, mathematics is really all about reasoning. The particular type of mathematics I do, I specialise in, which is called mathematical logic, the idea is to represent knowledge by a set of symbols and be able to manipulate those symbols to get answers. And this happens in computing, this happens in all kinds of areas. I think that if people saw more about mathematics as a beautiful subject, <laughs> they probably wouldn't be so scared of it. I mean, it's like we kind of teach mathematics as if the only reason you'd ever want to do it was to fill out a tax form. Because yeah. tax is scary, you know. <laughs> When we teach English, we don't do that. We teach English, we teach English literature, and we show them the, the beauty of the subject. And I think there's more of that maybe, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to say. I mean, it is a discipline. It's something you really have to work at. I think if people get motivated enough to work on it, then they get, they get reward from that. But if they're not, then it's not something you can dip into. It's not something you can look at one page on Wikipedia and get deep knowledge. It, it really is deep knowledge. Well, maybe a, a good thing is that People can appreciate a great pianist without being able to play the piano themselves. People can appreciate maths and what it does if it's explained reasonably well, can't they? Oh, I would hope so. Have a go. What do you do? <laughs> well, what do? <laughs> Pretend what do you're do? talking to someone at the checkout. Uh, that's tricky. <laughs> okay. Talking to my parents. Okay, what do I do? I, I study the mathematics of computation. So it's part of logic or theoretical computer science. Around about the middle of the 20th century, or a little bit earlier, people had this idea that you could break down tasks into tiny little bits and you could write algorithms with those little tasks in such a way as that if you follow those instructions faithfully, like baking a cake, then you'll bake a cake or you'll, or, or you'll assemble one of those, you know, those flatbacks or something like that. Mm. There's a whole theory behind this because you know, computers have revolutionised our lives, but on the other hand, somebody has to 
do the programs or more than it, do the algorithms sitting behind computing. If you understand the algorithms properly, if you understand what's going on, then you can build better algorithms, they run more quickly, theoretically make our lives better. And this is the, the, the kind of issues I'm interested in when I'm, when I'm doing mathematics. The idea of representing knowledge of symbols goes way, way back. You know, it goes back to Raymond Lull, for example, who was a Franciscan monk in the 13th century. And he put the attributes of God on a reckoner. So, you know, I, I'm in this moral dilemma. What, am I, what should I do? So you look up the reckoner and it says, oh, you should, you know, do 25 Hail Mary or something like that. And so he had this and it would, you know, would give it to people and, you know, that make their lives better theoretically. And so there's this whole history then going through Leibniz that somehow we could turn our knowledge into and, and questions into this abstract reasoning where you're representing things by symbols. So I don't really do much with numbers. I actually do a lot with symbols. All right. What is the application? Not that you have to have one. Maths is kind of cool all by itself. But cool. there are applications for what you do. As it turns out, not, not because I sought applications, but just yeah. because it happened. Yeah. One of the things we might study is what's called a graph. For example, I might have a graph which consists of dots that we, we have to give them mathematical names, so we call them vertices, and we join them by an edge, a line between them, if they have some kind of relationship, like the person knows that person, the dots represent people. But it could, on the other hand, you could be studying a virus or something, and this could be a bit of DNA, and this thing relates to this other thing. And the thing is, you've, you've abstracted the problem into a problem of, about graphs. And, for example, we might look for what are called cliques in these objects. A clique might be a cluster of things which have similar properties. So if I'm seeking to make a better drug using math modelling, then I'd look for a clique and say, oh, aha, these things are all related. Maybe if I can build something to attack that. Or if I was doing something with a social network, I might say, aha, these people have common interests. Maybe I could send them products over the internet that they maybe don't want to buy, but... <laughs> so I can better target my advertising. So the same tools are used in many places. But somewhere in the background, somebody has to be inventing the methodology for doing this kind of thing. Now, my own work started with a guy called Mike Fellows. He's now in Norway. We met at a conference, and we discovered that we had a lot of common interests. And we were studying, uh, sorry, this well-quasi ordering of infinite sequences of finite graphs. Let's not worry about what that means. <laughs> this abstract problem. And at the time, that's all it really was. And then we realised that after a certain amount of time, once we understood the stuff much better, we realised that, oh, well, actually, this, this could be applicable. <laughs> we didn't set out to, like, cure cancer or anything like that. We had no mission, and it was just purely our intuition that this was an interesting problem and an important problem. And as it turned out, we, we invented a new approach to attacking such problems. And this approach has been taken up by other people who have applied it in areas like DNA analysis, trying to solve the causes of deafness for Aboriginal children in the North Territory. There's a whole bunch of stuff around the world where this new approach, this what we call parameterized complexity, turned out to be exactly the right thing, to have this discourse with a problem. In, in retrospect, to me, it's kind of obvious that this is what we should do. But, <laughs> but you know, like it's weird that it's obvious in hindsight, but not at the time, I think. Yeah, it's one of those great ticks, I think, for something called basic research, which right. on the face of it is a misnomer. It doesn't mean easy research. It means go out there and find how it works or what's going on without a commercial or applied bowl, but who knows what you might find. Right. I mean, the, the examples we can look at are very easy in New Zealand. I mean, look, the discovery of the selenium deficiency in the South Island I don't think that was because anyone set out to make more crops down there. It was simply that they discovered the soils to lack this thing and we put it in you could grow more crops. The guy that discovered the ulcers were caused by bacteria. 
uh, Helicobacter. And simply he looked at these slides and said, aha, look, th this shouldn't be there. Mm. Or, you know, our, our Nobel Prize winner who... It was, again, it's, it's, you, you had the prepared mind and you, you study basic things. If you really make an advance and it really works, it can really pay off big time. Is the maths and meta maths, I'll try and explain the, the former trying to work out the solution to a problem and the meta side of it, the latter, working out whether it's even worth it, you know, proving whether proof's approvable, that sort of thing? The area that I started in and still continue to work in as well is mathematical logic. Yeah. Mathematical logic is sometimes called meta-mathematics. Ah. And what it is, is it's the mathematics of mathematics. So <laughs> you, you have this tool which is applied in lots of different areas. And then you're applying that tool back to itself. For example, there's a thing called Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Around about the turn of the 19th to 20th century, the people thought the universe was like this huge clock. You kind of wound it up, you let it go, and everything would happen. And I thought mathematics was like that. We could just build a, a hypothetical machine would just spit out all the things which were true of mathematics, right? And Gödel showed that, in fact, you can... <laughs> not going to like this. You can prove that you can't do that. So you can prove <laughs> that, that, that you cannot have a method of generating all the valid facts about a sufficiently strong formal system. So the idea was try and turn it into this formal system and then just run some mythical machine that would tell you all the things that were true. And in fact, he had the second incompleteness there, which was even worse. He said, well, at least we'd like to know that the system we're working in is consistent. And Gödel showed that you, in a sufficiently strong system, cannot prove its own consistency. <laughs> so this we don't even know that the stuff's consistent, right? This must have shook the world of mathematics, yeah, if it, not science. It certainly shook the world of mathematics. People suddenly realised that, you know, well, what, what are we going to do? But on the other hand, you could say, well, so what? I mean, you know, this is all very well and good, but who cares? But, of course, part of the proof was this diagonal argument that was essentially used by Alan Turing to show that not only that, you have no, there's no way of deciding if something's true. There's no algorithm to figure out given a state then a reasonable system of, of logic, yeah. you can't even decide if it's true. You can't, there's no algorithm which will tell you if it's true or not in a finite number of steps. And you can say, well, so who cares about that? But arguably that led to the birth of computers. Mm. So this incredibly obscure problem in mathematical logic that maybe, you know, 100 people originally cared about turned out to have profound influence on the world. It's amazing. It was a profound insight, wasn't it, from Alan Turing so early on? It wasn't like him alone. There were a group of people at the yeah. time who had a similar insight. He explained it better than anybody else. Okay. Prime numbers. Why are they so important and why are they so weird, Mr. Maths? <laughs> Mr. Maths, yes. Yeah, so I'm not a number theorist. Number <laughs> theorists study numbers. You must talk in the cafe. We do. Um, prime numbers just fascinate people. People study the numbers because there they are. In some sense, the prime numbers, because they're the most important numbers. They can only divisible by themselves or one, mm. and they're the ones that generate all the other numbers. So probably you could have argued they had almost no practical applications ever. But now, for example, all public key encryption is based on, well, not all of it, but a lot of it's based on something called RSA, that's three people's names, Rivesh, Shamir, and Alderman. And it's based on finding the factors of some number like so six is two times three whereas a prime number you can't divide it like that now if i gave you some massive number you know with, with zillions of digits and i told you it was a product of two smaller numbers like two times three but you know two two smaller primes there's an obvious way to try and find it just go through all the possibilities the trouble is 
you know, with not enough time in the universe to do that. Yeah. If we could do that efficiently, if we had an algorithm which would quickly find those two numbers, then all modern banking would become insecure. This is the fear of quantum computing as well, that it might do it in a bullyish fashion. Correct. If it could be implemented, could break crypto, uh, RSA cryptography. But that's by brute force, no elegance. No, it's it, by the magic of physics. Oh. They should have talked to Matt about this. Okay. But basically, in, in normal Boolean logic, you can do one thing or another thing. In quantum logic, it's theoretically possible to do exponentially many things at the same time. Um, we have no proof, by the way, that we can't do it. Aha! Prime numbers. There was this discovery I remembered reading about last year. That amazing. There's supposed to be no pattern. They go on forever and they're a bit mysterious. But someone's picked a pattern. They don't like to be next to similar ones. Yes, there are patterns in them. Um, and another, uh, one of the really big results in the last few years was by, I forget the guy's name, but uh, a Chinese mathematician apparently working in Subway in the US is a middle-aged man. And, um, you know, in his 50s. And he, so there's a really old problem called the twin prime conjecture. The twin prime conjecture is there are infinitely many primes which are separated by two, like three and five are mm. separated by two. Mm. 11 and 13 are separated by two. And we'd like to prove there are infinitely many of these that are separated by two. When he proved there are infinitely many of them which are separated by something, some fixed number. Oh. It's now down to about 700. But this was an enormous advance in the primes. It was really an absolutely enormous advance. Came out of the blue. Didn't expect it. Is there something spooky about primes, or is that just uh, anthropomorphising of something like this? I, I think the latter, rather than the former. Okay. Have you got any rock stars of the math world alive or dead that <laughs> you particularly admire? Let me just say, I don't really like any kind of cults of personality. I yeah, I'm totally with you, but I... I might pick Newton as um, an exemplar of the work he did, but I wouldn't want him as a flatmate. No, he was a horrible man. He's, you know, apparently had people killed, and, and he was horrible to his scientific colleagues. Yeah. He was an awful man. Euclid and Archimedes from the Greeks were, were amazing. Someone you've never heard of, a guy called Leonard Euler. He had, like, 19 children, and he was blind, and he just had thousands of wonderful papers that he brought out. He founded, like, at least three fields of, of human knowledge. In, it was amazing. When and where was he hanging about? He was in, um, well, was it, I think, the 18th century, maybe. Oh. Another person I really like was uh, Emmy Murta. She was a wondrous mathematician. Um, How are you spelling her surname? N-O-E-T-H-E-R, Murta. Amazing success for a lady back in the day because, you know, it was very difficult to get forward in the society of men then. And nowadays, I guess, if you had to look at who's probably regarded as the strongest mathematician in the world, probably... Terry Tao, the Australian mathematician who lives in the States, the youngest ever recipient of the Fields Medal. T-A-O, Terry Tao. Far out. And also, in the age of specialisation, also he's, he's a polymath. He's really good at almost anything he goes into. He can kind of waltz into some area and make really significant contributions almost immediately. And if, for those that don't know, Field Medal is... So Field Medal was kind of regarded as the Nobel Prize in mathematics, which actually it really isn't. Currently awarded every four years to people who made the best contributions into mathematics under 40. You have to be under 40 to get it. Fields Medal, generally speaking, is given for someone cracking a big problem mm -hmm. because it's, it's easy to recognise. And there was that crazy cat who kept refusing the Field Medal. Yeah, he did refuse it. <laughs> they tried to push it underneath the door. He kept pushing it back. What was going uh, on? 
Perelman, yeah, he didn't want that. He didn't want didn't want any money. He, he also won a million dollars from the Clay Institute for solving that problem, huh. and he refused the money. What's going on there? I don't know. Okay, I, I don't like to feed into this notion that we're all weird. No, <laughs> <laughs> he's not helping. Fabulous stuff. Congratulations, Rod Downey, on the Rutherford Medal. And we haven't talked about Scottish country dancing or the latest great surf break because, oh, we're talking about the maths here. We don't want to get into a cult of personality, right? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> good one. Next up, Grant Christie. We'll blow your mind even further with the latest astronomy news. Astronomy Today with Dr Grant Christie. I've been watching some astronomy, actually listening to some astronomy documentaries. I put on documentaries and I just, I don't necessarily watch them. I just I listen to a lot of them, but that's neither here nor there. They've been really quite, quite good lately, Grant. Just on YouTube? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a fantastic resource, YouTube. I often go to bed and sort of listen to uh, yeah, videos and stuff and... Yeah. Wake up in the morning, find my phone on the floor, and but you know it's <laughs> battery uh, critically low. Yeah, there's uh, oh, there's some great stuff. Um, really high quality. It used to be just sort of rubbishy quality, but now you get yeah. ultra high definition and everything. Yeah, they still do. I, I avoid the ones where someone kind of yells and there's a drummer in the background or some band like Pantera going. And now the explosion. <laughs> Oh, shut up. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I think the European Space Agency ones have good, uh, quite good soundtracks, very high quality oh, right. things, yeah. Okay. Uh, we have uh, our astronomy little video of the week. It's explaining something. It's a good thing on YouTube. It's lightning in the solar system, and Jupiter's kind of a star. It certainly is. Well, not astronomically speaking. No, 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 not at all. It's a rock star. Too, too small to be a star. Mm. But, the, yeah, so yeah, so all the planets, uh, it goes through, uh, the video goes through the uh, all the different planets where we've had lightning detected. Of course, we know about Earth. As lightning occurs on Mars, they've actually got little burn marks on the ground that are, you know, scientists are arguing are caused by lightning strikes. Really? Uh, but that, that still hasn't been absolutely confirmed. But these are strange-looking sort of dark um, spots on Mars that uh, when they look at them closely looks like a sort of a where an electrical arc has hit the surface. Um, that was intriguing. I hadn't heard of that one uh, until today. Um, and of course Jupiter is very strong with uh, lightning and you uh, quite simple science experiments from Earth can detect it. So it's a school level science experiment. You just get a little parabolic dish with a, a microphone and you can point it at Jupiter in the sky, in the daytime sky and you can listen to its uh, lightning strikes and you usually hear a, a sharp click first and then followed by a sort of a, a sort of a trailing sound but it's quite uh, easy to demonstrate huh. I, I suspect lightning would be quite big on Jupiter because they've certainly got a lot of weather oh, it's very powerful I mean so the poles have got a lot of lightning strikes and the orbiting satellites can see the uh, strikes as well it tells them a lot it's a way of probing the magnetic field of Jupiter as well so right. it tells them a great deal and lightning of course changes the chemistry of uh, a lot of things, it doesn't does. it? So it after billions of years of lightning there, I, you'd have to factor that in as one of the causes exactly. of creating that's, molecules. That's right. I mean, it, it breaks apart molecules that normally have no other way to be broken apart, and uh -huh. then they can react with other things. So you're quite right. Okay. Let's talk about this mission to Mercury. That caught me by surprise. I didn't realise someone was going there again. Hasn't someone just been? Yeah, well, we've had Mercury Messenger, NASA's spacecraft, that finally got to Mercury and orbited and mapped it and so on in detail. Prior to that, it would been Mariner 10, a couple of flybys only. Mercury is really the hardest planet to get to. Why? Just shoot something towards the well, sun, for goodness.
Technic technically, the pro well, you'd think so. The trouble is that a spacecraft launch from Earth has too much angular momentum. It has to d get rid of all that angular momentum because uh, it's much higher than where Mercury is. So somehow the Earth, the spacecraft has to get rid of that, and they do that by doing lots of flybys by other things. Uh, so um, it's it's a it takes seven years of this orbiting around, slowly shedding the sort of energy that the spacecraft's got because the Earth is going around the sun at a certain speed, um, and it's just got too much velocity by the time it gets to Mercury. So brakes are the problem. So it, it has to slow down, basically, and it does it by lots of passes by other planets, um, and they gradually knock the uh, pace off it until it can come up and uh, coast up beside Mercury and actually get caught by the gravity. If they can't do that, then, of course, it's going to be a flyby. Uh. So it takes them a number of times. To, uh, it's actually like two spacecraft. Uh, one's made by JAXA, one's made by ESA, European Space Agency, and one by the Japanese, uh, and they have different roles. But on the way there, it does. Uh, it's going to do another flyby Earth, it's going to do two flybys of Venus, presumably taking images and stuff as they was by, and six flybys of Mercury before it finally gets into orbit. So oh. it's 2025, I think it is. So um, it's not just a holiday until it gets there? No, no. Well, it'll be... I mean, there'll be long periods where nothing much is happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the next exciting thing is in April of 2020 when it does its first flyby of Earth. When we get a selfie, <laughs> they'll probably be testing instruments and stuff. Um, it's got two separate spacecraft. One of them's going to be a um, an orbiter that goes... Well, they'll both be orbiting uh, Mercury if everything goes well. Mm. One of them's to look at the magnetic field of Mercury, which is very sort of quite strong. It's like a, it's got a huge iron core, which, of course, suggests that it's going to have strong magnetic field. And also, in the planetary imager is the, uh, by ESA, is going to be orbiting in a near-circular orbit around the planet closer than what Mercury Messenger did. Mercury Messenger was in an elongated orbit, so in the northern hemisphere it got really close and got really good de de detail of the surface, but far less so in the southern hemisphere. Mm. This uh, uh, new ESA satellite will get much better images and do, a, you know, because it's more advanced technology, years have gone by since uh, Mercury Messenger was designed and yeah. sent. So, uh, so we've got a quite a few sleeps to wait for that one to yeah. to come to pass, but it'll be worth the wait, I think. What's Why are they going to Mercury? Well, it's oh, well, it's a boring, huge, isn't it? Mercury well, boring, it's, just lump. Well, there's a huge number of things that aren't understood about Mercury. It's, it's um, A, it's hard to see with telescopes from Earth, so uh -huh. little was known about them until spacecraft started to go there. Um, you know, how it even came to evolve in its current situation, it's slowly shrinking, which is another thing about it. Uh, that, and there's all sorts of things about Mercury that are unknown. And, and right. Messenger actually pointed a lot of these things out. Now they want to sort of follow up and understand more about its ge the the geology and the dynamics of the crust. Um, and uh, and of course, there's the poles of Mercury are among the coldest places on the solar system. Ironically, because, yeah, because the sunlight's coming side on to the planet, and if you've got a crater at the pole, then it never sees sun, mm. and so it's a no atmosphere. So, just like the polar craters on the moon, there, there's ice there. Mm. There's ice on Mercury. Far out. Okay, uh, Hubble has been in trouble. It's on the mend. It is. Uh, this was, ex you know, just here in the last couple of days. Uh, yeah, so these, it's had these problems with these little wheels that spin and control the, uh, control the pointing of the spacecraft. Um, one of their backup, there's, there's six wheels, three of them have failed. Um, they need uh, basically two to operate. 
um, and when they had a dud one and then switched over to backup, the backup was giving them dud numbers. I mean, huge numbers and so on. But anyway, they've now worked out how to fix that, and uh, so it now looks like they're going to be operating with two reels again for the foreseeable future. Um, so that's huge news for astronomers. I mean, it's a, they're trying to figure out ways to keep this telescope going like forever because it's such a, it's mm. considered the most um, probably the most valuable and important uh, science instrument ever constructed. And that means bigger, better than the Large Hadron Collider and the other big, huge radio telescopes and so on. It's the sort of science that's discovered uh, over its uh, 30 years of work has been, um, you know, singularly important. Though that deep field views, just so amazing! What a great idea to find the blackest bit of sky you could yeah. and then just stare at it for ages. A million seconds of telescope time. That's how they work out telescope time on the Hubble is by the second. And huh. the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute at the time uh, had certain privileges. He had certain discretionary time that he could do and he saved up his discretionary time. Uh, I met him some years ago when he came to Auckland. Uh, He'd saved it up and uh, he decided that his contribution was to lay it all on the table and do one image of one little piece of you know, empty piece of sky in the southern hemisphere, which had virtually no stars in it in the Hubble field of view, and all you were seeing is galaxies in the background. And it was like a, like a, a drill core that a geologist would do, drill down into strata, looking at the past. The Hubble Space Telescope did a sort of core sample through the universe as far as was possible to see in a thousand a, mi- a million seconds of telescope time you were seeing very very faint things with a space telescope. And there are just galaxies. Everywhere. That's right, and seeing these little dwarf things. They were looking so far back that they were seeing these things before the formation of the nice spiral galaxies like our one. Our right. galaxy is like 12 billion years old. Uh, the, we're looking at, the Hubble was showing us galaxies that were only like seven or 800 million years old, far le- mm. well less than a billion. So these are very young galaxies. Okay, so good news. Hubble. The things that our galaxy was built from. Right, I see back in time as we must remind ourselves now mars oxygen rich life supporting liquid water may be goodness me oxygen rich how yeah, do you get oxygen yeah, well, rich you know we keep getting these stories uh, you know so a few weeks ago it was a big deal when a uh, esa satellite um mars reconnaissance orbiter managed to detect uh what looks like a lake underneath the south polar cap of Mars. Uh, one and a half kilometres down underneath the ice cap, there is a puddle about the size of uh, our Lake Tekapo here in New Zealand. Uh, and uh, it's, yeah, that was a single discovery. It's not ultra confirmed yet. It's still, mm-hmm. there's still wriggle room. It might be something else, but it looks like the most likely thing is it's a, a water under there. And, and to be that, to have water at that cold temperature like minus 65 celsius or something like that uh it has to be extremely salty otherwise it'd be frozen at a solid block like mm. in your refrigerator brackish is an you understatement know, if you fresh water from the tap into your refrigerator it'll mm. freeze at sort of zero celsius um here you've got minus 65 celsius so it has to have a lot of salty stuff in it now the question is uh could microbes live in it uh well it turns out that that matters what matters is how much dissolved oxygen you can have in the water and and uh, so they've been doing these um, studies uh, on, uh, well, basically they're theoretical studies looking at computer models of, uh, of the chemistry of, of Mars. And uh, they've found that uh, given uh, the fact that Mars wobbles on its axis quite a lot over, over a relatively short time, so its climate changes enormously. So when they take into account the fact that Mars' orientation to the sun 
changes over periods like 20 million years, uh, which is short geologically. Um, and uh, also they have these um, uh, the these liquids that they've already detected on Mars uh, and they've done the chemistry modelling of them. What they come up with is a, th a fact that uh, the bottom line is that they argue that the oxygen content of this sort of water that could be in this lake could be a hundred times more oxygenated than anyone imagined. Really? So, you can, so we talk about you have to have liquid water to have life. Um, it's a bit more than that because you actually have to have oxygen in there as a food source for organisms, yeah, uh, chemical reaction. So you have to have aerobic yeah. uh, chemistry possible and you only get that if you've got oxygen present as well. So that's what this study's been looking at and it argues that in fact there are, there's good reasons to suspect that uh, there will be places on Mars and they're, they're predicting where to look on Mars to find these uh, areas where you'd expect to find higher concentrations of subsurface water with oxygen in it. Mm. Um, so just water by itself without having free oxygen doesn't help you much. No. All right. So, so it's so uh, it's a quite an intriguing study, and uh, it's sort of a whole whole side of um, life on Mars that I hadn't really thought about much. Okay. So, I was wondering where the oxygen comes from, silicates and things like that, the O2s. You'd have to have what they call a reducing thing to make the oxygen come free or something. Yeah, one of the chemical models that they say they 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 you can run computer models and simulations of chemistry if you understand the sort of physics of it and okay. so on. And they, they were able to look at how oxygen O2 molecules uh, can sort of react in, in salty water, whether they're retained and uh -huh. whether they're lost and so on. So what they found was that they ended up with a surprising amount of it, much more than they expect. Right. Love to get a cup of the stuff. <laughs> oh, rather you than me. <laughs> okay, uh, Jupiter's moon Europa. It's rather an exciting place. Um, these are big, bold moons of Jupiter. Yeah, well, Europa's uh, very exciting because, of course, the um, the first imagery from the Voyagers and so on showed it had these big cracks in the surface of uh, of it that, that looked like places uh, where it had an icy crust and there were breaks and it looked like stuff could be coming out from the inside. Mm. Um, then they uh, also had Galileo orbiting for a long time around Jupiter and it got a lot of close-ups of Europa um, but uh, didn't actually didn't actually get definitive um, evidence of of geysers coming out like we've seen on Enceladus for example mm -hmm. and, and the moon of Saturn. So the and, and they've tried. They've they've got some suspicion that, that there have been little plumes of stuff blowing out of Europa, seen through the Hubble Space Telescope. But that's here at near Earth, and mm -hmm. it's a long, long way to Europa. So the, there's always been this little bit of doubt. So um, they went back to the imagery from uh, the uh, Galileo mission, where they looked at uh, they, they did heat scans of Europa, and the places where these there's been the suspicions of these geysers coming out of Europa, uh, which, you know, that implies that there's heat underneath that's pushing them out. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they did is they looked at all the thermal imagery that they got and found that there was no sign of any hot spots at those places on the surface. It could have just be pressure. It, it could be. So, I mean, basically, the, uh, the, the, the there's basically four alternatives. One is that 
these plumes don't actually exist. I mean, I might say that the reason that this is important is you could send a spacecraft to Europa, orbiting around Europa, traveling through the plumes, sampling those plumes, looking, capturing some of that material and seeing whether there's any sort of signs of living organisms or molecules associated with life coming out of Europa. So let's make sure the plumes are there. So you want to make sure the plumes are there first. So one is that they might not exist at all because mm -hmm. the evidence for them is a little bit tenuous. Um, the other possibility is the plumes are not continuous, so they only happen occasionally, and when the thermal imaging was done, they weren't happening, and now they are. So that's another possibility. Um, it could be that there's, um, they're too small to detect the, uh, the um, hot spots. In mm. other words, the, the hot spots are there, but the sensitivity of the instrument wasn't, um, uh, wasn't present. Or th the fourth option is maybe these are plumes, but they're different to what we've ever seen before. So the ones on Enceladus, they found, Cassini was able to see that where those plumes were coming out, the surface was actually warmer. Ah. So what was coming out was warm stuff from the inside. So right. that means thermal sort of activity on the on this ocean floor or something like that, that which are like what we see on Earth. Um, so but Enceladus is so tiny. It's much and, smaller than and, Europa. And Europa is big and gets squeezed by Jupiter a bit, doesn't it? And there's yeah. lots of radiation, so it's well, busier. Lo lots of reasons why you would expect Europa to be a prime target. Yeah. But I think that, the, you know, in some ways the goalposts have shifted a bit. If there's, wa there's if is water under the ice cap of Mars, then that's going to become the prime focal point of going to that rather than going on a mission to Europa or Enceladus because those are both expensive places to get to. It's easier to get to Mars. Uh -huh. And potentially you could actually, you know, drill down or or do echo sounding with uh, sonar or something like that through uh -huh. the ice to find... Uh, to find out of the uh, map out these lakes because if there's one lake there there's actually be multiple it's just one uh, and it's only a small little lake and a very big ice cap so there could other right. be pools of water they haven't found yet so there could be lots of those under the solar uh, under the southern ice cap of mars fishing rod that would be great amazing to get a bite well i think we Ooh. talked about a few weeks ago the hazards of trying to you know you know the, the, it would be very hard to imagine how you drill into that without contaminating it with earth yeah. Organisms. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's already been done in Antarctica, where the Russians bored through the ice cap into the lake underneath Antarctica, which is a similar size to this one on Mars. It's so worrisome that maybe people through, won't do it. Well, it, they'll be very cautious because it's a unique situation, yeah. and so um, yeah, so whether they can, you know, do it in a sterile way where you don't transmit Earth organisms to Mars and contaminate what you're trying to measure. Yeah. So, All right. Anyway. Okay. Um, now, your place, you've had a lot of clear nights this week, which means you've been suffering the sort of um, uh, affair that uh, terrorists are put under to try and get information <laughs> out of them, a lack of sleep. <laughs> but there's a new research collaboration as well, Stardome. Yeah, we've, it's, it's something that's... Uh, in the past, we've done work on gravitational microlensing, which led to the discovery of planets. That was a very exciting project, lasted about a decade, um, up until about 2015. Um, and uh, just recently, we've started working with the same group who are now working to discovering supernovae. So they've set up uh, automatic telescopes. Uh, they've now got three running in the northern hemisphere, three in the southern hemisphere. So they're imaging the entire sky every night uh, and they're looking for supernovae so the project's called all sky automatic survey for supernovae and it's a little um jazzy thing is assassin so uh -huh. it's the assassin project right. um and they're now detecting a new supernova 
in a distant galaxy every single night. Really? On average. There are 400 a year or so they're finding now, which is a, a hugely increased discovery rate of supernovae. And they're... Uh, so when when they find them, the their camera just says, well, something's gone bright at this point and we know there's a galaxy there, but they need telescopes like ours that can resolve finer details to look at them and actually make measurements in different wavelengths to tell them what sort of supernova, because this is a whole new field that just really sort of blossomed in the last few years of the fact that there's a zoo of supernovae. There, it used to be that we thought there was two types of supernovae if you look at books written 10 or 15 years ago, but mm. now there's this zoo and all sorts of different ways in which different stars can go off bang. Uh -huh. And so for the first time, we're seeing um, a big sample of supernovae. Uh, instead of discovering a few a year, which it used to be like in the 1970s, uh -huh. uh, that would be a, a quite a, a good haul for a year. Now we're getting 400 a year and the numbers are rapidly rising. So they need telescopes like ours to follow up on the details of some of these more interesting ones. Uh -huh. So basically our work nowadays is uh, we've got a target list of maybe a dozen supernovae that we can observe at any given time. And just depending on the sky conditions, we just pick them off, uh, observe them, uh, maybe it takes an hour, hour and a half to take our data and then move to the next one. So it's... Um, and uh, then the theoreticians can sit down and figure out what Churn it means. the numbers. It's, it's, uh, it's very interesting because every, everything we're imaging now has got a galaxy in it. Some of the galaxies are so faint you can barely see them, even right. after a long exposure, but the, the galaxies are still there. And the supernova Because all of these are in different galaxies. We haven't had a supernova in our galaxy, uh, not an observed one, since 1604. Right. And that so was five that... years before the telescope was invented. Right. So the Milky Way is seriously overdue for a supernova. Okay. But they're happening all the time in these other well, galaxies, galaxies, but you wouldn't have a galaxy with like... Uh, our galaxy, the lack of supernovas is not um, an aberration. No, well, some well, there's some galaxies that are particularly... Uh, that seem to have more than their fair share. Mm -hmm. There's galaxies that in uh, the last like, few decades have had like five supernovae. And so uh, there's something about them. They're just active. Uh, Different type of stars. Yeah, well, you know, it's probably just probability as well. Mm, okay. Um, other, other galaxies, you know, you could probably wait centuries, many centuries, a thousand years before you actually got a supernova. Right. But um, so... Yeah, so it's it's learning about the environment that these supernovae are in. Um, when they go off bang, you can learn something about the chemistry of their, their environment, the sort of stuff that's in filling that galaxy. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, there's been no reason to look at the most of those galaxies. They're just little faint things that have got a number. Right. It's amazing to think that a galaxy that far and all the billions of stars and a supernova, one star, can make enough noise and light to actually show up from that far away. Yeah, well, if, if, if massive stars, you see, and in terms of the numbers of stars that are formed in a galaxy, galaxy that like three quarters of them are little faint red dwarf stars that are never going to go supernova so mm. the number of stars that potentially could go supernova produce a supernova of any sort in a galaxy is a tiny tiny fraction of the total number of stars in that galaxy mm -hmm. and uh, so that's why they're not sort of going off like every 10 minutes okay now we have candidates nearby though don't we Betelgeuse is big and red and fat and yeah. troublesome yes. that's an Orion it's the yeah, red one in Orion right. could so that well, go bang tonight uh, well, it could do. I think we'd see more signs of it instability be running up to that time. But okay. it basically, it is certainly it's twenty times at least twenty times the mass of our sun, so, and it's a red supergiant. So it's a very, so it's churning through its fuel at a fast rate. It's mm -hmm. very luminous, um, and when 
when it finally runs out of enough uh, uh, the material in its core that it can produce energy and runs out of, you know, it's can't, suddenly its furnace, nuclear furnace switches off, that's when you'll get the supernova. The core collapses into a, something like a neutron star and the outside during that it gets blown off and produces this enormous thing. But it's not going to... Enormous explosion. It's not going to have any adverse effect on Earth. No, uh, okay. I mean, but still, it's... Uh, be a good show. It'll be a damn good show. It'll change yeah. the look of Orion forever. Yeah. And we've got other stars that are so massive that, uh, you know, that might be 100 times the mass of the Sun, something like that, where they, they can, instead of going bang, when, the, when their core stops producing energy, they simply implode and drop straight into a black hole and blink out of existence within the... A second or less than a second, they would just sort of go boom, and that's gone. Far out. Okay. Unbelievable. Is Eta Carina going to go bang? They're called failed supernovae. Okay. Yeah. Is Eta Carina going to go bang? Yeah, it's predicted to at some stage, but it's sort of such a unique star that it's hard to predict the details. But it's certainly got the in the right sort of. It's going to do a bang. I don't think it'll just vanish into a black hole. Okay. It'll, it'll have some sort of a bang. And we can can we see that in the night sky? Ah, you can see it by eye, naked eye. It's visible with the naked eye now, just as a faint star, if you know where to look. But it's, uh, yeah, but it's a long way away from uh, us. It's uh, not, not a close, it's many okay. thousands of light years from us. All right. It won't hurt us. Thank you very much, Grant Christie. And we'll talk again next week. Fabulous news. Yay for Hubble. What a good thing. Oh, Hubble. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. If you've got any questions for our experts, our regular ones, Grant Christie is happy to answer some questions for you, just as Max does on words, their origin and meaning. What's Max having a look at tonight? Uh, scam. I think it sounds good, doesn't it? Being white-anted and the difference between flammable and inflammable and some massively interesting story behind the word cobweb. And why isn't it a spiderweb? New sport and weather coming up next.